back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. We are the original Mining and Metals Podcast, and as always, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do visit yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity in Canada's Yukon Territory. And we are coming at you once again with a fast and furious action-packed episode. That is right, Leslie will be swinging by with the uh, most recent edition of the Geology Corner. Uh, This one is really cool because, uh, well, twofold reasons. First, it's an example of listener feedback and listener contribution. Uh, And secondly, it talks about a sort of new technology and exploration that might have uh, some really important um, applications moving forward. Uh, So just a little bit of a background story here. We talked about seismic a little bit. A few of our guests have talked about it. It's being used in Ireland quite a bit to look for uh, zinc deposits at depth and sort of like improve exploration techniques in Ireland. Uh, Mickey Fulp was on talking about it a bit last uh, last week or two weeks ago. But uh, we had a, a listener who uh, reached out to us and was like, oh, you know, we know a ton about seismic. Um, uh, him and his wife, Jen, uh, live in Western Australia. Uh, this is our listener, Dave. Um, and uh, uh, Jen actually works for Hasice, which is a special uh, specialty sort of seismic outfit working in Western Australia uh, with majors and some mid-tier companies. Um, with sort of the cutting edge seismic technology. So they reached out and they said, listen, uh, you guys have been sort of asking questions about this and uh, but, and uh, Jen knows a ton about it. Um, so how would you like to like set up an interview? Leslie can do a geology corner on seismic. And we're like, that's awesome. Like we would totally want to do that. Uh, so we set it up. Leslie uh, got in touch with Jen over Skype um, and that's going to make up the bulk of our geology corner this week. So if you're interested in seismic technology, what's going on with it, what its applications might be and whether maybe you can use it at your project, check this out because it's going to be a really cool conversation between Jen and Leslie. I'll run that a little bit later in the show. Uh, and secondly, um, I had an opportunity uh, in my <laughs> in my ongoing mission to track down all the zinc projects I could possibly uh, discuss with people. Uh, we've covered Arizona mining. Obviously, I've talked to Tinker Resources. We talked to uh, Mark Cruz from Trevally, president and CEO. This week, uh, I had a chance to sit down with Vendetta Mining president and CEO Michael Williams to talk about their Pegmont asset, uh, also in Australia. So this is sort of an Australia th- themed episode though it was totally uh, not on purpose it was an accident but it, it works out great it, let's pretend i did it on purpose uh but michael williams you might remember the name uh founder of underworld resources which we all know was acquired by kinross gold for the white saddle deposit in 2010 for around 140 million so i am going to run uh that interview with michael uh just in a little bit first we'll cover just a touch of macro this week um as i should call that's what i should call the segment a touch of macro um but uh we're just going to go through run through a few things in terms of metal prices some things that are going on out there we're paying attention to um and also i want to revisit the uh van Eck gdxj rebalance which is scheduled for about uh what is it four days from now june uh, 17th uh i actually got a really good little um uh, primer from canaccord uh, in terms of the most frequently asked questions about the GDXJ rebalancing. So I'm going to go through that as well. Uh, Firstly, we'll just cover a little bit in terms of metal prices and news out there. Um, firstly, spot gold inched down a little bit this morning to about 1261 per ounce before bouncing back to about twelve uh, $1,268 per ounce uh, at the time of recording. Uh, the drop was largely chalked up to technical selling ahead of the start of the two-day Federal Open Market Committee meetings, um, given most invest- investors are staying on the sideline as the feds are talking. Uh, a rate hike uh, in the U.S. appears to be a foregone conclusion, said Scotiabank. Uh, the market will, however, be looking for clues as to the pace of future 
future rate hikes this year. Um, speculation is leaning towards dovish given recent weak U.S. economic data. Uh, Scotiabank notes that unsurprisingly, the U.S. dollar is treading water as well. Uh, meanwhile, physical gold ETFs were down 14,000 ounces on Monday. Copper was also retreating this morning off a uh, recent high of about $2.65 per pound down to $2.59 per pound, once again being impacted by the uncertainty surrounding the Federal Open Market Committee meetings. Uh, Scotiabank notes that short-term uncertainty remains a key theme around copper. Furthermore, after rising slightly for the first time since mid-May, London Metal Exchange copper prices were down about 3.7 thousand tons overnight, while zinc stocks were also down 1.1 thousand tons. Uh, so that sort of touches base a little bit on our metals as we uh, sort our way through the typical summer doldrums, as I like to call them. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's touch base really quickly with the Van Eck GDXJ rebalancing. I had some uh, great emails from listeners uh, after we discussed this briefly last week uh, the deadline is looming we are getting predictions of very high volumes as the uh, ETF rebalance uh, deadline uh, creeps nearer we, we know it's on that uh, June 17th date so uh, what I wanted to do is just uh, go through a little bit I got a note from Canaccord is good note wherein they had like it was called uh, index rebalancing 101 or the answers to the most frequently uh, ask questions around index rebalancing. Uh, so this is from Canaccord Genui's director of ETF trading, Eric Chung, and it uh, sort of digs into uh, the rebalance of major indices uh, in North America. So uh, uh, these questions, I'll just read off the questions and answers really briefly here because uh, there's some interesting information here. So question number one, how frequent are index rebalances? Uh, the answer uh, is stock indices are designed to model the stock market. However, the companies listed on the stock markets change over time. So the indices must also reflect those changes. For example, most of the original Dow Jones Industrial Average Index members have changed through M&A activities or have been dissolved with only General Electric remaining. That's an interesting note. Uh, component rebalances have allowed the index to continue representing a relevant set of companies in the market. While the frequency of index rebalances range from daily to annually, or even longer, many of the large major indices have decided a quarterly change is a good balance between frequency and asset turnover. Question number two. <laughs> uh, how are ETFs affected? And this one's sort of apropos. Uh, the answer is most exchange traded funds track indices, so they rebalance like any other fund. ETF market makers who hold underlying baskets as a hedge against an ETF position must adjust their basket to match the rebalance in order to maintain a proper hedge. Of interesting note, a long position in an ETF requires the market maker to trade the opposite of the index rebalance to maintain his or her hedge. Question number three. This is our last one. It's a top three I'm doing right now. Uh, can traders get ahead of a rebalance? Okay, so the answer here is opportunistic traders often speculate on the index changes and attempt to trade ahead of it. We've seen this happening. Hoping that large funds rebalance flows will push prices with their outsized orders. Some argue that these activities are immoral, yet others also argue that it is actually market efficiency spreading out the acute impact of the index rebalance trade and providing a smooth their price transition. In either case, it has evolved into a very crowded game with a lot of risks. For example, there may be so many speculators buying ahead of an index edition, 
hoping to sell at the closing auction at a higher price, that the closing auction itself ends up with a heavy net sell and a large drop in price, known as a wrong way imbalance. So that just gives you a little bit of a hint about what we might be looking at here, why we've seen some of those volumes. Uh, it's a good little note from Canaccord. If you uh, see it floating around, it's definitely worth a read. Um, but uh, I just wanted to touch base on that because I did get a lot of feedback on the VanEck stuff last week, and people are really sort of watching that. Even um, internationally, I got some uh, inquiries from some interesting places around the world. So I wanted to get a little bit more information out there, get that discussion going on, because that's really what we're about, promoting discussion around mining globally. Uh, and that's also one of their awesome things that's happening, as mentioned at the Geology Corner this week. Uh, we're getting a little bit of uh, listener interactivity, which is awesome. Uh, but before we get into that, um, I'm going to go ahead with uh, the interview I did with Michael Williams um, uh, of Vendetta Mining. Uh, we talk, we're going to get into their uh, Pegmont lead zinc or zinc lead project, I should say, uh, in Western Australia. Um, interestingly enough, uh, they got into this project in 2014 uh they had did release previously a sulfide resource on it that totals about 4.4 uh, million inferred tons grading 6.51 percent lead uh, and 2.8 percent zinc uh so there's uh there there's they've been uh working to outline a larger resource there obviously and there is one expected relatively shortly so uh, i had a chance to sit down with michael and talk a little bit about uh, a 10,000 meter drill program that they are uh, undertaking this year uh, what they've sort of been up to since picking the property up uh, roughly around three three or four years ago um, and just sort of what it's been like with this sort of resurging zinc market and i know everyone like this another thing i got really good feedback on is people like to hear about what's going on with the zinc market uh, so michael will dig into the tcrc stuff um, how he views the zinc window and uh, how that's applicable to their strategies at Venn data um so i'll roll this it starts with a little bit of background on the property uh, what uh what the company's been up to uh where they're looking this year how they figured out their geological model which is pretty interesting i like that bit um and then we finish up with just some commentary on broader zinc markets so i will run this uh this interview and then i'll be back after the break to interview uh or to interview to introduce uh leslie's geology corner with jen on uh, seismic prospect In 2007, there was an Australian private company that was looking at going public on the ASX. Okay. So they came onto the project. They were going to use Pegmont as their uh, main listing pro property, spent some money privately, and then the financial crisis came and they blew up. Yeah. Uh, Peter Volgaris looked at some of the data from their drilling and realized that their two wildcat holes yeah. had, had both hit... Uh, higher zinc grades than they'd previously seen on the project. So r right away, it was originally thought of as a lead dominant single lens ore, but there was kind of two reasons why it sat there. One was uh, historically guys were mining 15 to 20% lead zinc in the region. Uh, you know, this was nine, 10% lead zinc, which is kind of where it sits today. And, and then the infrastructure grew up around that as these other ore bodies went into production. But it was also, as I said, thought of as a single lens lead dominant system, which is what you see close to the surface. It, it, the further away you go from the vent, you see more magnetite. Closer yeah. is more pyrotite. So, so Peter goes right away, I think this is a Broken Hill style, style model. Yeah. He goes, there's, there's multiple lenses here. So yeah. this thing is bigger than 5 million tons. There was also an academic... Uh, academic paper out that said there's no uh, sulfide ore that extends below the 
the mafic dike, the okay. amphibolites. So no one else really, as soon as they hit the amphibolites, they stopped drilling, yeah. failing to realize that uh, the, the ore body certainly continued. Yeah. We used orientated drilling. Yeah. And, and really, without doing the orientated drilling, I don't think we could have figured this out. This wasn't an easy, you know, it wasn't as easy as we anticipated. You know, we thought it was a flat-lying structure coming in from two, three, four, hopefully five. Yeah. You know, five's got some, some folding in it. We're hitting, you know, anticlines and synclines. There's enrichment, depletion. It, it's, uh, it, it's been tricky. We've got it dialed in now, but you really have to have your geological model down pat. And, yeah. and we've got that. We had a different geological model. We liked Australia because of the infrastructure. That was the other big leg up. I, I could identify exit strategies in the project that I couldn't elsewhere. I, I looked at, uh, I'm going to say, close to 50 North American lead zinc opportunities yeah. over a three-year period. And the, the underlying common denominator was high capex mm -hmm. that would make it exceedingly difficult unless you could use a dollar ten or a dollar twenty lead zinc to make it work we modeled this at 90 cent lead and 95 cent zinc mm -hmm. so we were using current metal prices so we felt that that gave us a little bit of a leg up on the canadian stories yeah. ha having said that yeah. it's an english-speaking country yeah. which, which helps it's a common law country certainly helps and three we're in a mining jurisdiction yeah. so we, we we've got the social side of, of the equation dealt with and the aboriginal claims um, th this project, all the current resources currently sitting in grandfathered mining leases. Yeah. So uh, as part of a mine plan, it would expedite the permitting process. You would still need to get your operating permit. But as you, uh, on, the, on the new Orange Zone 5, we would go through the process. But to give you an example, Dugold River, which is the next, I think, big zinc operation, MMG's deposit to the north of us, and that's a $1.5 billion capex. Yeah took them 18 to 24 months to fully permit, including roads and tailings facilities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what we, we'll do some additional met in the uh, up in zones 2-3. Okay. And we'll do some pit wall planning up there as well. Okay. And we'll do some uh, environmental impact studies. Yeah. Uh, basically, we want to make, the, the first thing we want to do is make those open pit targets, the economics, look tight. Yeah. So, you know, we want to be able to demonstrate either to a bank or to a, a potential suitor that, hey, look, this is your payback period just from these alone. Then you do a small decline down and then your room and pillar for, you know, the next X amount of years. Exactly. And, and, and then you're up still. Uh, yeah, I think we, we'd start to look at a PEA in Q1, Q2 of next okay. year. Um, the, the goal this year, we might put out, a, we, I know we're doing an updated yeah, resource. Yeah. Uh, the next one should be fair, fairly straight ahead. And we just, yeah. So, you know, we, we could have an updated resource on Q4 this year, and if not Q1, and then, then that would lead to a, into a PEA. I mean, it, it's interesting, A, to just hear what you think about the zinc market, and yeah. B, sort of how that's influencing the timelines that you're setting for yourself as far as value creation. Well, look, I, I always maintain that uh, zinc, having a zinc asset is like holding a burning match. Yeah. <laughs> it's burning brightly, and it, it, it's, you know, I think it's been the, probably the commodity with a light shown on it for the last yeah. 24 months. I think that's going to continue at least for the next 24. Predicated on those TCRCs are, you know, 50% from last year. Yeah. They're, they're at historic lows or slightly coming off historic lows. 
Uh, Glencore, to me, is the elephant in the room mm -hmm. with the, their couple zinc mines they've shuttered. You know, those aren't coming on stream for at least six months, if not longer. Um, the Asian smelters are clamoring for cons. Yeah. And if you have anything close to resembling a clean concentrate, you know, I think your world's your oyster on, on that. Now, zinc historically, though, can pull back very quickly. And I think that's where a lot of guys are coming from. It has. Mm -hmm. So I, I view it like this. I think this zinc cycle has two legs, and we're in the first right now. That first leg is what you're seeing is shortages in supply. And, and that's due to the mine closures. That's not rocket science. Yeah. The, and then, but the elephant, once again, is, is Glencore and the Chinese. Now, the Chinese, my understanding is they are selling concentrates now. Uh, it's tough to keep those guys out of the market. They all, you know, you can argue pollutions. I, I think the Chinese also, if, if there's one thing worse than pollution, it, it's they don't like any insurrection. Yeah. So if they can get economic drivers, they tend to favor those yeah. short term over their long term environmental things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I expect to see cons coming out of China, but the demand is still is still good. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking infrastructure worldwide, United States, Europe, and um, Asia. So going forward, but then I, I think what you'll see is zinc could go, we'll wake up, it's going to be a dollar fifty, and then the next day it's a dollar seventy, yeah. and then everyone's saying it's a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. Once you hear those words, start selling <laughs> but it'll 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 pull back then you know it'll it'll pull back over the next 12 months to a sustainable level and that's the second leg that's yeah. actually the more important leg really is to, what, what is it going to end up sustainable it, you know these spikes are, are beautiful and, and that's where the producers the guys are right you know yeah. if you miss it you've missed it mm -hmm. but for, for companies like us when that spike happens, we want to be in a position to demonstrate our economics, mm -hmm. A, to a bank, so we could finance it through to production, or maybe to a potential suitor, and, and you'll get a, pr a better premium. But once it starts to pull back, there'll be panic in the zinc market. It's over. It's done. Mm -hmm. We won't see another zinc market for 10 years. But I, I think what you will, in, in, in fact, see is a higher sustainable price moving forward. back to studio thanks again to michael williams and the team at vendetta mining for uh, taking the time to sit down and chat about the pegmont zinc lead project in western australia uh, once again there is a new resource due out there uh, pretty much the guidance is for in the next couple weeks so uh, we'll pay attention closely to that obviously they can't really tell me when it's coming out uh, but uh, they previously disclosed that it should be uh, sometime around the end of the second quarter so that's you know right where we are right now so i uh, will keep our ear to the uh, newswire on that one i do have a longer form interview with uh, michael williams of Z uh, vendetta that i'll be turning into a long form article in the next couple weeks so uh, check out northernminer.com for that while you're over there please do consider subscribing it is darn well worth it uh, do grab that dual uh, digital and paper subscription uh, you also get access to our canadian minds handbook which is uh, an absolutely uh, indispensable resource in terms of keeping track um, of sort of uh, claim ownership uh, activity, etc. Uh, so yeah, do uh, do consider that. Also, while I'm on the subject, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check us out on YouTube, and do rate us on iTunes and subscribe because of the strange iTunes-related podcast metrics. Um, but anyways, I've been ra ranting about that recently. Uh, you probably tell. Uh, but uh, now we're moving right along. Uh, we got Leslie's special coming up. This is once again. 
a deep dive conversation on seismic uh, and its applications in exploration. Um, I'll let Leslie sort of introduce it and get into it with the guests and everything like that. It's a really cool piece. Uh, I found it invaluable. Once again, it's a really great story because uh, listeners Dave and Jen, uh, originally from uh, the Sudbury area, uh, Jen actually worked for Falcon Bridge uh, doing seismic back in the day. So that sort of lets you know how long the technology has been around. Um, but uh, yeah, so specialists in the field, uh, we have been discussing this a little bit as mentioned on the podcast. So it's great to get somebody come on who's a specialist in the area that can really uh, nail down the science for us and let us know sort of what's the cutting edge um, cutting edge activity going on in terms of seismic. Uh, so I'll let Leslie take it away. I'll come back after the break just to wrap up the show. One of the most depressing moments of an exploration geologist's career is when he or she realizes that every single brownfield target at the mine site is underneath either the tailings dam, the mill facility, or even their own donger back in camp. And trust me, this actually happens more often than you know. But fortunately, in this day and age of blossoming technologies, future generations of geologists might not be faced with the same dilemma. So for this week's edition of the Northern Miners Geology Corner, we're going to investigate how some companies have taken the age-old seismic technology from the oil and gas industry and spun it into something, one of the hottest new exploration techniques for mineral deposits today. And to give me a hand with all my questions... I brought on a guest. My name is uh, Jennifer Neal, and I currently am a senior geoscientist at HiSci, so I perform both um, duties for uh, geology and some of the geophysics as well. Jennifer, who is a Canadian geologist by trade, is calling in from Perth, Australia, where HiSize has its main headquarters. So she joined the company a few years ago, super eager to learn about the new technology. And from what she tells me, she's not the only one who's interested, obviously, because seismic surveys for hard rock exploration is quickly building momentum. And HiSize, being the leader in conducting and interpreting these surveys, are at the forefront of the budding market. I think it has a lot to do with word of mouth. So we have these fantastic partners, um, such as Northern Star. We've got Anglo Gold, um, Evolution Mining. Uh, these companies are talking more and more about 3D seismic work that we've done. So it's early days, back in 2009, we didn't really have that word of mouth. People weren't believers. And now, as it's going, we've done these surveys, and they're saying, wow, we didn't believe you. Now we do. This is incredible. We're seeing structures. We're seeing um, all this folding. We're seeing all these, you know, fantastic things. You know, this is this technology has come a long way, and it's not just about a layer cake, you know, oil and gas technology anymore. This is about you know seeing what's deep under the surface at high resolution. So let's get down to basics, shall we? How exactly does seismic work? Um, this can be anything from, you can use a hammer, a uh, weight drop. We typically use um, and anything that produces a, a, a sound wave can be used. So I could stop my foot on the ground and you put your phone beside there with this little sound recorder and it produces a wave. It's essentially that same thing and we record that. So that travels through the subsurface, through all of the different interfaces within the ground and hits each one um, 
And every time there's a change in density and velocity, which is called the acoustic impedance, the product of that, every time there's a change in that, it records that change. And that's what produces, um, produces that signal. So you'll get that, and then it'll go to all these different geophones, which are laid out on, on the surface. And we'll get records from each of those. Jennifer tells me that seismic surveys can provide a resolution down to 10 meter by 10 meter by 10 meter and up to three kilometers depth, which is really exceptional. But most importantly of all, can they pick out ore bodies? Ore bodies, we, we love to say that we can always see them and that they always stand out um, very clearly, but um, we see indicators for our bodies, and I think no technology has been really good at, you know, resolving these ore bodies at this, you know, in this stage, we can't say we we can, but we can resolve changes in acoustic impedance. So if you have a really dense material, um, as we know, these sulfide bodies are very dense. Um, you know, pyrotite, calcopyrite, you know, we're getting really heavy material with a certain velocity and we know those velocities through a lot of testing, um, then we can compare that to the surrounding rock. And if you have a rock that, you know, is a high contrast to that, then we're going to be able to, you know, see that change in acoustic impedance through the seismic. So we like to say we can't directly, you know, can't get direct indications of where an ore body is, but, you know, through changes of acoustic impedance, you you can see, you know, it's not impossible to see an ore body depending on the contrast contrast uh, of the surrounding material. And that's what all geophysics deals with. It's all that contrast. You know, if all the material is um, the same velocity and the same density, I mean, it's never going to happen. But if it were all the same velocity and density, you're not going to see anything in the seismic. But that, you know, even when we we think we're, not, we're you know, you're not going to get the greatest result. We tend to see so much. It's incredible because there is minute changes over small, you know, small periods. And, and when they add up together, you know, there's always so much texture in these seismic images. It's incredible. So in a nutshell, any change in the density or velocity within the geological environment, seismic can actually pick it up. So I guess this would include faults, intrusive bodies, sedimentary units, and as Jennifer tells me actually, even broad scale alteration halos. Fascinating to be able to see things like uh, intrus intrusive coming in. You know, you've got a mafic intrusive, we can tend to see those really well, like a, a dolerite or a um, any kind of ultramafic rock, these things tend to stand out really well against a, you know, a felsic rock. So these are the kind of changes you'll be able to see um, very clearly. And as I said, faults. Um, we like to say that you can see, you know, any any changes in um, the mineralogy, the porosity, um, you know, alterations when we stand by quite a bit, and a lot of my work has to do with that is um, testing alteration halos of these different ore bodies because we can see, even if you can't see it by eye, you know, we can see it through the seismic. 
and the work that hyperspectral work is really um, up and coming. Um, it's been going on for the last kind of 10 years or more, I suppose, but it's really become popular in the last 10 years. And that's the whole basis of it is that seeing these alteration halos of these ore bodies, and it's based on you know the the um, um, the frequency of these different uh, different materials. Now, with all this being said, there are some challenges with seismic, of course. And a lot of the accuracy in seismic survey hinges on whether it's a two-dimensional survey or a three-dimensional one. In 2D surveys, geophones are laid out across a straight line with the idea of being able to obtain a cross-sectional slice of the subsurface. However, it's, it's not that easy. Mineral deposits aren't normally hosted within a bunch of flat-lying rocks, as we all know, and the shock waves that they produce go off in all directions, all directions. So this reflection is scattered all over the place, and energy that one of the geophones might pick up in a two-dimensional survey could come from rocks quite a distance away. So what you could end up having in that cross-sectional picture is actually overlapping pictures from the geological environment around it. But even still, Jen says that processing the data really helps limit that interference. And explorers are often super pleased with the results from the 2D surveys themselves. And so once they know, they have that confidence that seismic can work in their geological environment, then they can proceed then with a 3D survey, which basically is like a gridded layout of detectors and seismic source locations, not completely corrects for any scattering effects. And in the end, we, we can do this in a 3D cube for the 3D surveys. And, you know, that's a really powerful tool because not only people don't tend to understand, you don't think this way, but you can look at it, you know, through one direction. You can look at it on the y-axis you can interpret it through the x-axis, and then you can go down and go through time and go through the z-axis. So you can just cut it consistently through, and you can see these structures and, you know, how they're moving, um, you know, where they're going and, and the, the orientation, and suddenly everything's becoming really clear. You know, some of these companies can follow their ore bodies and trace them down, not only through, you know, X and Y, but now they can trace them down through depth, now up to kilometers depth through the 3D survey. So it's, it's a pretty um, powerful technology. Depending on the scale of the survey, a 2D seismic survey can take apparently less than a week to complete, whereas a 3D survey can take over a month. But of course, the big question on everyone's minds is like, well, how much do they cost? 3D surveys can, can run quite expensive, but if you put it into the perspective of, you know, how much are you drilling? Some of these mining companies are drilling down to two and a half kilometers depth, and they want to do, you know, two or three holes to, you know, to get a little uh, pinprick into the earth, whereas you're getting a 3D survey for, you know, might be in the a million dollar range, but how much does a drill hole cost you at that depth? It's probably pretty close to a million but you're getting so much more information. So, yes, it is really expensive. I think a lot of companies probably get scared off by the initial cost, but it's the amount of information you're getting from it. There's obvious perks knowing the possible extensions of your ore body. That as much is so clear. But most importantly, from a mine planning perspective, that knowledge is totally invaluable. 
Knowing where to build a shaft, a tailings pond, or other mine infrastructure without interrupting future operations, like for expansion, for example, it's a big boon for companies, potentially saving them millions of dollars or even the mine itself in the long run. So yeah, if you're interested in having high sites do a survey at your property or you want to know more about it, just visit them online at highsites.com.au. And big thanks to Jennifer for joining me this week on this week's edition of the Geology Corner. And this is Leslie Stokes with the Northern Miner. Thanks for listening in and talk to you next week. to studio thanks again to leslie and jen for uh sitting down and talking about seismic that was awesome uh, i'm glad we got some uh, really concrete information on the technology because we've sort of been hearing about it on the periphery and its usage and things like that but uh, to really get somebody on who was uh, involved in its uses is, is really awesome and something we really pride ourselves on at the northern minor podcast we try to get uh get the inside scoop for you on uh, whatever we happen to be talking about this week so thanks again to leslie for uh doing that interview um it's great and if uh, any listeners do have um any connections or comments on uh, issues we're talking about uh, on the show, please do reach out to one or both of us. Um, and we'll always look uh, look towards perhaps setting up an interview or a meeting with somebody uh, just to really get uh, the bare bones and nuts and bolts of the story correct. Um, and we love doing that. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. We don't bite, I promise. Um, but uh, that's slowly coming to the end of the show here. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention uh, for our sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance, uh, a little bit of good news came out last week in terms of Gold Corp at the coffee deposit in the Yukon, which they bought off Kamenak last year for uh, in excess of $500 million in cash and shares. Uh, Gold Corp has filed uh, documents in March uh, that became public last week. Uh, CBC actually pick up, picked up this story along with uh, a series of other um, outlets. Um, uh, that uh, sort of outlined their plans for coffee. Uh, they said they're at least four years away from production. Uh, it's, uh, as we know, the project's about 130 kilometers south of Dawson, um, and uh, Gold Corp is slowly moving ahead. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, of a bumpy uh, media situation with the Trondek First Nation, which is the uh, Dawson City local First Nation, uh, where the CBC ran a parallel story where they said there was a little bit of friction between Gold Corp and uh, uh, local communities. But we'll see how that moves ahead. For now, however, Gold Corp uh, does does appear uh, to be uh, to be pushing ahead with coffee. Um, it says, uh, according to the filed documents, the mine plan uh, is projected to produce about 200,000 ounces of gold a year for about 10 years. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see as that moves ahead, sort of um, how the drilling turns out, whether coffee continues to grow, uh, and how the Gold Corp uh, plans to develop it. So it'll be interesting to see, but some good news uh, is that they're moving ahead with some of the regulatory filings. Uh, definitely, uh, from what I've heard and seen, doing a lot of uh, a lot of stakeholder relations up there. Uh, so good for Gold Corp uh, getting out. Uh, looks like they're really uh, putting coffee up there uh, as a priority. So good news for uh, everybody in the Yukon. Uh, and once again, I will be up there in July, uh, roughly one month from today, uh, almost, uh, just to tour around, check out what's going on up there, see how many birds are in the sky, etc. So really looking forward to that. Uh, but that pretty much wraps up our show for the week. So thank you again for joining us at the Northern Miner Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Keevil. You heard from Leslie Stokes in the Geology Corner, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>